You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. It's Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm your host, Blake Smith, and I'm back from a break. I've recently changed jobs, and my new work required me to do some intensive training and certification, which I've now completed. So I'm able to record episodes again. And I think you'll enjoy this one featuring a return guest, scientist and author, Darren Nash. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. All right, so Monster Talk's excited to welcome back Darren Nash, paleontologist and author of the popular Tetrapod Zoology blog and co-host of the Tetrapod Zoology podcasts. Tetzu.com is where you can go to hear that, along with John Conway. The Tetrapod Zoology podcast, which I still stubbornly maintain should be called the Tetrapodcast, uh, is a great show. We've actually done a special where we did a uh, co-recording. Darren's here to discuss his latest book in well over a week, Cryptozoologicon. And of course, I'm joking about that, but it is good to see that someone in the science field of the side of the house is producing content at a rate at least approaching that of Nick Redford. So, so Cryptozoologicon. Redford must be stopped. Well, what's the, what's the book about? Um, well, um, where do I start? We, we published a book uh, last year called All Yesterdays which was uh, basically about speculation in paleontological depiction of animals, in paleo art. Uh, there's all these things that, that, there's a traditional way of depicting something, let's say Tyrannosaurus attacking Triceratops, familiar image. But many of the, of the ideas that we see being perpetuated are often, often quite poorly founded. Often they are just speculations. And we basically said, you know, you think of all the things that living animals do that you might not have, that you wouldn't know about from the fossil record. There's so many possibilities that aren't really explored. So this book was specifically saying, here are speculations on things that we haven't really seen explored before. Now, that, that approach to paleontology, to the depiction of extinct animals, appeals also to our interest in cryptozoology, the study of mystery animals, because a, a major component of cryptozoology is, is speculation. I mean, you think about any ideas that people have developed about 
ident- the identities of mystery creatures, the the ideas they come up with explaining the evolution, the biology, the ecology of mystery creatures. Um, they are essentially exercises in speculative zoology, speculative biology, speculations about about um, yeah what these animals might be and, and the stories behind their evolution and biology, how they might work as organisms. So um, this book, The Cryptozoologicon, is it's led by the artwork. The idea is we took a bunch of mystery animals, a bunch of cryptids, if you want to use that term, and um, tried to come up with you know novel uh, speculative interpretations of what they what they could be. And initially the idea was to accompany each beautiful illustration. John Conway and, and Memo Kozman are the illustrators. Um, I can draw, but I'm not really an artist. And uh, the idea was to just accompany each illustration with, you know, like a hundred words or something. But um, before we knew it, we ended up with great quantities of text um, because we wanted to explain the speculations that we explored and then you needed to put in a bit of background, you know, like what, what the creature's meant to be. And then you also needed to, I was like, hold on, well, then you also need to evaluate it. You need to say what, what we actually think about, it. you know, where does the evidence take us with regard to the reality or otherwise of these creatures? And so we've ended up producing quite a lengthy book that's got a lot of text in it, as well as some pretty pictures. I liked it. I mean, I, I got it. I bought the digital copy. Uh, and, of course, we'll put a link to that in the show notes so people can buy a tangible copy as well, though. Um what do you think this book offers that most cryptozoology books don't? What's different about your book? Yeah, what's different about it? Um, I should say, by the way, that it's only the first of, uh, well, was definitely going to be two and, and maybe more in the future. And, and that, that reason is because we produce so much content that um, due to the, the on-demand publishing software, the platform that we use, uh, there's, there's a constraint in pricing. Um, if we produced a really big book, it would just be hugely expensive. And we thought, no, no, we can't have this. So we have to split it up into two. So this is volume one. Volume two is going to come along. Um, most artwork that you'll find in cryptozoology books is kind of pretty tired, pretty boring. Uh, even the, the great classic books that everyone's got, you know, you see the same old black and white drawings being trotted out. That's not to say there aren't some very good um, artists who do depict cryptozoological animals. Uh, regularly some of them almost seem to make a living from this but um yeah we wanted some like you know brand new uh innovative pretty artwork and um that's obviously what john and memo do so so that's new a, a bunch of like big uh, pretty uh, attractive um colorful uh, depictions of, of cryptids obscure and well-known ones i mean we, we run the whole the whole range in this book from familiar mystery animals to really obscure ones um, and then also I kind of think that, well, the speculative thing. So we've tried to explore new ideas that haven't been discussed before. We, we do make it very clear in the book, and, and I, I hope it's clear from everything that we've said about the book uh, and everything that other people have said about the book, it's clear that our speculations are not meant to be taken seriously. We are kind of being a bit tongue-in-cheek about some of these ideas, coming up with alternative explanations for, for cryptids. Um, but that's allowed us to explore and discuss things to do with the evolutionary history of animals that isn't well known certainly isn't well known to people who are interested in mystery animals and isn't well known to people who are you know science buffs skeptics fans of that kind of stuff in any in any way any case you know everything from hominid evolution to the history of dinosaurs and other similar animals and the diversity of living animals as well i hope there's a lot of new content there and then also our skeptical evaluation of the creatures i, I think also we um, 
it's kind of ironic that that we uh, and and a complete coincidence, I should add, that we worked on this book at the same time as uh, Dan Daniel um, Loxon and Donald Prothero have their new book, Abominable Science. You know, because that's obviously come out. That's that's a new book that's only been out for a few months. Um, that's obviously a uh, a scholarly um, critical look at cryptozoology. Our approach is kind of similar. You know, we come from a, a similar place in terms of a skeptical part of the universe and um so we've kind of said similar things about you know if you look critically at the evidence that we have for these alleged cryptids um you know we're, we're on it i would say I, I always try and say you know we're honest skeptics you know you don't you, you don't dismiss something you get where does the evidence take you there's a there's a few cases where we're sort of on the fence open-ended you can't dismiss this some of these animals out of hand we need more evidence but there are others where i think you can reject them out of hand there's no evidence all the evidence is a joke and um we haven't really what's the right way of saying it we haven't um been shy in terms of basically saying that some of the people who've written about cryptids cryptozoology who are regarded as um you know big people in the field icons of the field in actual fact <laughs> you look at some of the work that they did some of the stuff they've said it there are some big problems in what the, the rigor of the of their work. Bernard Hooverman's is the classic example. Um, you know, like, like many people interested in cryptozoology, I grew up reading his books and have a great affection for them. But um, this kind of idea that you encounter within the cryptozoological community—that he's some mighty scholar who was the most brilliant researcher on the planet—I'm <laughs> um, afraid. <laughs> Always try and choose my words carefully, but uh, just there, there are there are, there are reasons to, to question that uh, that particular view of Hooverman's. And we and we've said this in the book. We've said, you know, there's he compiled this case for this given mystery animal, but well, no, he got that wrong. No, he was like thirty years out of date on that, and and no, he was clearly making a big logical error in putting this and this, putting two and five together and making six here, and um, that kind of stuff. So yeah. Yeah, Ivan Sanderson had feet of clay too, with which uh, they made giant penguin footprints on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> I wondered what you, where you were going to with that. Yes, yes. And, he, and did you read the thing about he actually claimed to have seen see one of the giant penguins as well? I read yeah. that uh, in your book today. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I had not heard that before. In fact, there was a lot of new material for me. I, I, I mean, some of the creatures you covered, I had never heard of at all, and uh, I feel like I'm, I'm fairly well read in the field. It would be handy if you could name off the creatures that you cover. That would be uh... okay. So uh, there's there's no real order to the way they're treated in the book because some of them do seem to seem to be, so, well. For example, okay, so we start with we have got quite a lengthy introduction which covers the general history of cryptozoology and stuff. Uh, the row or the row, I don't know how you say it, but this uh, this this uh, mystery giant reptile from New Guinea, known only from a single report, which has always been regarded as a hoax, but we thought there was interesting stuff to say about it. Say about it. The Candy Island Monster, pretty obscure. There's, there's, there's a place here in England called Essex, which has got a reputation for being, as we say in the United Kingdom, a bit of a dump. <laughs> and uh, it's, I'm sorry to anyone from Essex who's listening. The, the Chubacabra, or Chubacabras, however you want to say it, um, Watariki, which is a, a, an alleged amphibious mammal from New Zealand. The Beast of Gévaudan, which also, I don't know how to pronounce that. I no, you did pretty good, I think. <laughs> Again, amazing story. Just blown away with that story. It's incredible. Uh, the Bunyip, the Zoyomaro creature, 
again, you know, everyone knows that, and most people would not really regard that as a cryptid. But again, it's an interesting thing you can say about it within the context of. Mm, we've covered that on, uh, on the Monster Talk. So. Oh, I knew that. Yes, I knew that. Yes. Um, <laughs> Mobile, which episode? I must go back. It goes way back. It was like four, right. like three or four. It was really early on. Yeah. Was it? What, did you talk to Glenn Cuban? We sure did. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mobile, Mobile, Mobile. One of these um, Congolese water monsters discussed by <laughs> the creature. So nice, they named it thrice. <laughs> <laughs> what does what does this? Yeah, what does this mean if it's got three names? Very strange. And um, I, I think this is a good moment to say that it was described. We only know about this animal thanks to Roy Mackle. And of course, today, then if you've seen, I did. I was very sad to see that uh, he's allegedly passed away. Yeah, yeah, sad news. Yeah. Um, he, he haven't heard anything from him for a while, so this isn't a surprise. And there was a rumor a couple of years ago, actually, that um, that he was he he was with us no more, but it seems to be confirmed. So yeah. Yeah, people are talking about that today. So uh, R.I.P. Uh, Roy Mackle, Professor Roy Mackle, uh, long neck seal, uh, Kelpie, uh, Dingoneck. Do you know what a Dingoneck is? Would you know if you hadn't read the book? I would not have known had I not read the book. So. Uh, what, what do I say? Do I say to people you have to read the book to find out, you or should, do I tell yes. them what? Yeah, no, I think you should leave mysteries here. What? <laughs> Cadbrosaurus, fairly familiar. Tizarek, again, pretty obscure. It's a kind of water monster, um, a marine thing. The Buru, the hoop snake. Uh, I, oh, by the way, I loved that you covered the hoop snake. Hoop snakes and joint snakes. Uh, my grandmother told me about growing up, and uh, and and I don't. You didn't cover joint snakes, but. Uh, have you heard of those? No. Really yeah, so it's, it's really interesting because I suspect it's probably a real animal. Um, but she described it as, as a snake called a joint snake. And, and it looks like a regular snake. But when you get near it or scare it, it falls into pieces. And all the pieces wriggle. So she's describing something like a, like a lizard tail falling off. So I thought I maybe, maybe, perhaps it's, it's uh, just a sort of folk description of some real uh, yeah. legless lizard. Right. But. The, the catch is, uh, in the folklore, the snake will then reassemble itself when the danger's passed. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is quite a common motif in stories about, um, it's said that if you, uh, well, the, the, the legend uh, in, in, here in the UK, we have this story of the, this thing called the lantern worm. I'm sure you've, you've heard of this story. This um, creature that was captured in a well and um, uh, the Earl of Lambton. Now, the Earl of Lambton is said to have discarded this ugly worm into into a well, and then when he came back from the Crusades or something, it had turned into a giant monster that would come out of the well and eat virgins and sheep and such. And he had to wear a special spiky suit of armor in order to kill it. And he had to make sure when he killed it that he cut it up into bits. Uh, and he had to do it in a place where there was fast-flowing water because if he didn't, the bits would rejoin and the animal would, would be okay. And the similar thing is said if you cut snakes into bits, they're said to rejoin maybe after sunset or something. Yeah. But, um, yeah, definitely heard that before. And the, um, there's, a, there's a bunch of um, anguid lizards, um, uh, glass, related to alligator lizards and slow worms, those kinds of animals. Um, what's their common name? They're called glass snakes. Yes, glass snakes. In, in Europe. Right, yeah, because they're, they're North American ones. I can't remember. I suppose they're called glass snakes as well, are they? They are. But, um, yeah, they, they, they look, they look snake-like, but snakes actually have really short tails. But these animals, not being snakes at all, being anguid lizards, they have really long tails. And, um, and they shed the tail as a defensive mechanism, but they don't shed the tail in one piece. It breaks up into four or five 
independent bits, hence the name glass lizard, because they're meant to fracture into bits. So you could imagine you, one of these animals looks like a snake, but seems to break into bits. And those bits, you know, the tail may be, I don't know, a third or half the length of the whole animal. So um, people could imagine that they were seeing a snake break into bits. So I don't know. Yeah, maybe you're onto something there. Maybe that's where the legend comes from. But uh, yeah. So yeah, hoop snake, bit of a weird choice, but there you go. We went with it. Megalodon, megatooth shark, um, the a-hole, a giant yeah, bat-like thing. Yeah, the a-hole. So now that you've written a chapter, would you consider yourself to be a complete a-hole expert? yes (laughs) excellent (laughs) well well i wouldn't i wouldn't actually (laughs) but uh, in seriousness (laughs) there is a there there was one of these one of these tv series is What's the correct plural for series? I never know how to say it. Oh, I don't know. I assume it's series. <laughs> series. One of the, one of these, yeah, you know, like one of these things where people, what are they? What are they called? You know, there are a whole bunch of these TV shows where people go around the world allegedly looking for mystery beasts. Sure. They potter around in the jungle. I don't find anything. So mystery well, there shows. Was like, yeah, 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 yeah. There, there was an episode of one of those devoted to the a hole, and um, my understanding from the literature is that there are only two or three accounts which come from Ivan Sanderson. But apparently in this documentary, they recorded a couple more. They, they found a, a few more um, of these sightings. But, well, to be honest, who's to say how reliable that is? Yeah. I mean, I, can, I, I would be slightly suspicious that if they went into the... We certainly know from other documentaries that they basically get people to say stuff that they want. True. So, True. Uh, yeah. So I, I think I we've learned... <laughs> we've talked to quite a few people who were on uh, Monster Quest... And uh, that that seemed to be they, they really struggled to get them to fit the narrative they had already put together. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so uh, finally, Trinity Alps salamander. So a, a giant salamander from the Trinity Alps. That's, that's California, I think, isn't it? Um, goat man. Yeah, you said goat man. Was that was that a serious chapter or was that satire? <laughs> 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 I had to think about it. I had to think about that. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Uh, yeah, uh, um, yeah. It was well. Well, the, the title, the, uh, the that section is subtitled "Half Man, Half Goat, Half Serious." <laughs> so we should have done that. Half satire, half half satire. Very good. Very good. Edition, right? <laughs> yeah, I was definitely, definitely. I, I love, I love one of the stories of uh, so. Well, I'll, I'll give some details away on this particular mystery creature, but, but um, so Goatman is one of these one of these mystery creatures where uh, different people in different parts of North America have come up with legends of in quotes Goatman in, independently. So it's not as if there's one entity that lives in Detroit or something, uh, but it's different places have come up with their own Goatman legends, and um, all of which are nonsense. Uh, one of them is meant to be the original one is meant to be like a, a, a Sasquatch type creature from you know somewhere in the, the south. It was the Carolinas? Um, east. Think, yeah, that's it, somewhere like that. Yeah, and then but then there's others that are meant to be. There's one that's meant to be um, uh, a laboratory experiment gone wrong. Some kind of crazy guy, a bit like the lizard in Spider-Man, you know, but, but a goat instead of a lizard wears a lab coat and uh, <laughs> carries an axe, and it's very dangerous. And, um, and so we decided to, to uh, yeah, to run with this. What, what if, what if there really was a goat man? 
My, my, my favorite story, I think it's from Oregon, is uh, the media said that they found the goat man. <laughs> I remember that very well, right? The, the goat man was being filmed from a helicopter and it turned out to be a guy disguised as a goat because he was training for hunting mountain goats. Um, so, uh, and, But they called him the goat man, so it became somehow involved in the goat man saga. Um, yeah, I thought the subtext of, of the goat man legend was that that goats are very promiscuous. That's uh, <laughs> that's what I always pick. I always assumed that was the implication that that somewhere there was a lonely farmer and a and a very open minded goat. So, <laughs> so goat goat human hybrid. We didn't cover that hypothesis. Well, but, uh, I'll, I'll, this is interesting though because a lot of cryptozoology, the um, the creature components themselves come from eyewitnesses' accounts or, or legends and, and not from uh, physical samples. I mean, obviously, the washed-up-on-the-shore dead animals are the exception to that. But um, because of that, um, you, the speculation about what, what these creatures might be from the cryptozoology side is not as informed as what you have in this book. This, the, the speculation portion of each chapter, I thought, this is really the first opportunity to get a... Um, even though some of them are quite amusing and silly, you do take a very uh, reality-based approach to your speculation, I think. Yeah, well, well, I'm pleased to hear you say it. Thank you very much. But, yeah, um, well, there's a couple of things to, you could say about that. One is that I think that some of the ideas that have kind of become mainstream in the cryptozoological literature, you see them being repeated again and again and again, is they're quite, they're quite tired um, and and boring you see the same ideas being repeated again and again and again so so that 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 congolese creature discussed by roy mackle the mobile 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 he comes up with a suggestion in his 1987 book a living dinosaur he says that <clears throat> so the mobile 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 supposedly two people described how they saw a water creature with planks on its back um, and and he immediately came up with the idea of it being like a stegosaur type animal, and then we see that idea being repeated again and again and again in all the cryptozoology books, as if that's the only thing people can think of. And it's come on, if you're gonna come up with a, a, a an alternative explanation for that phenomenon, there's there's a whole there's a whole list of other things you've got to you've got to consider. And and as you'll know, I think you and I spoke about this before when we when we did a podcast, a tetrapodology podcast. But there's other things you can come up with that that are better in some ways, you know, better explanations than the one we keep seeing repeated again and again and again. Um, there's, I mean, I think part, part of the problem with some of these ideas in cryptozoology is that most people who produce cryptozoological literature, now again, I'm going to try and be careful how I say this, but because, putting this in the wrong order, but here I go, yeah, cryptozoology has always involved, you know, people that are, um, qualified scientists, you know, there's lots of people who are tremendously knowledgeable about zoology and biology and the diversity of animals. Lots of those people are involved in cryptozoology. However, many other people who produce cryptozoological books are not, um, you know, trained. Uh, they're not they're, it's zoologically. They're not zoological experts. They don't necessarily know that much about animals. I'm not saying there's anything no, no, wrong no, with no. that. No, no, no. Let me interject here. Let's, let me remind people that Brian Regal described it as a split between crackpots and eggheads. And then we'll, <laughs> we'll put the blame there and you can move forward. <laughs> okay, Brian, as Brian said, um, he is solely responsible, yeah, for, for, for this view. But um, I think because, because there's so much of an overlap between cryptozoology and sociology, psychology, anthropology, all these other fields, I can understand why... 
some of the uh, most prolific cryptozoological authors aren't, aren't really coming uh, to the subject from the, from the zoological perspective. They're coming at it from the human interest angle. And um, so that means there often isn't a zoological expertise displayed in people's speculations and evaluation of cases. And people are often, you know, not aware of what's been said about animals in the technical literature. They're not aware of, you know, ideas about evolution and, and uh, all that kind of stuff, which, you know, I, th I think in, in an approach to cryptozoology, we need to follow... Um, we should follow what what Hoovermans said. He 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 was a, a qualified zoologist, and he said that um, you know um, it was meant to be part of the zoological sciences. And uh, I mean, there is a big problem in this view in that it kind of assumes to start with that cryptids are flesh and blood animals. That itself is a big problem with the, with the whole area. But um, yeah, you're supposed to be interpreting these things within a zoological framework. So you've got to have like the biology and evolution smarts in the first place. And yeah, we're often not seeing that. So we've tried in the book to um, to incorporate that much that that stuff as much as possible. Often incorporating totally totally new new ways of looking at creatures. So the a hole, that giant bat like thing. Yeah, when people write about it, when cryptozoologists write about it, they say, "Ooh, it's a giant bat, and it could be the biggest bat ever." But they don't say, "Well, there's these new ideas on bat evolution, which suggests that there's this weird group of bats that might conceivably." possess a bunch of features that do seem consistent with what you see in the A-hole. You don't see that in the cryptozoology literature because the cryptozoologists tend not to know about it. So some of these ideas that we explore in the book, yeah, they are they are novel, they inform they are informed by new stuff that we know about because it's you know, I'm a working paleozoologist. I publish technical stuff about uh, fossil and living animals and um John and Memo are both um Specialist technical artists who uh, keep up to date with this stuff as well. So uh, I think I think we're um, uh, one of my big problems with the cryptozoology literature has always been that most of the you know well not most but a lot of the ideas in it are, are just not coming from a properly informed source and they're decades out of date. And and this was true of Bernard Hoovermans himself. I mean he was saying stuff when he was he was when he was writing his books in the fifties. He was saying stuff in the fifties. That was known to be wrong in the 1930s. So it's like, come on, he he was not. Very very few of us can be up to date uh, on you know uh, an area as vast as animals, <laughs> the living world. You know, can you really keep up with absolutely everything? That's a, that's really really hard. And um, to be trained in you know most of us are trained in one small thing, and then to to uh, say say bold, brave things about uh, yeah, some area of expertise that's long away, far away from, from your actual area of expertise can be dangerous. It can get you into trouble. And uh, this definitely has happened. Oh, with, sure. Um, yeah. I, I think yeah. uh, uh, an unwarranted confidence in one's uh, intelligences <laughs> and skills can, can lead to all kinds of interesting and horrible conclusions in your career. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I just keep telling people how stupid I am and, and that I know what well, Humility and self-deprecation are good qualities, or at least I believe they are. Um, but but uh, well, let me ask this. So why do you think it is that so few technically uh, grounded people uh, in your field uh, maintain that sense of wonder about monsters? <laughs> do you ever sit around with paleontologists and, 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 and talk about this sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, a, it's quite a... It's quite a popular area, um, as is um, 
you know, an interest in monsters from sci-fi movies and comic books and stuff. So, so the idea that 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 uh, scientists uh, don't do that sort of thing is actually just a uh, bad uh, stereotype. Until you've just told me about it, I wasn't aware that this was a stereotype. <laughs> oh yeah, you, you haven't read on the cryptozoology blogs about how scientists living in their you know, ivory towers of academia they dismiss all things wonderful and. You've never noticed, you've never run into that trope, seriously? Oh, my God. Well, um, well the, the human experience is, is complicated. It's difficult to I'd generalize about people. Yeah, well, I say scientists. I mean, monster denialists. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I mean, yeah, but, but because on, on the one hand, I could say I, I know a load of, you know, scientists who are, with all due respect, they might be very nice people, but they're actually very boring. They're not interested in anything that overlaps with the, you know, like my mother, my mother's approach. She would say, she would say, what are you interested in that rubbish? I don't want to watch aliens or Terminator. Well, I rubbish. Turn it off. I want to watch Coronation Street or Emmerdale Farm or the news or something. Sorry, those references might have been over your head, but references are going to be boring British soap operas. Um, <laughs> It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Um, the, uh, there is that kind of attitude, yeah. In like, oh, some scientists want to be serious, and and they're fairly straight people. They, yeah, don't want to be, don't want to, they don't have an interest in this kind of stuff. But I would say the majority, uh, I, I think, of of, of uh, people I know who are you know passionate and interested about this stuff. I mean, I think of how many scientists I know that went to see Jurassic Park or Godzilla or are excited about the new Godzilla movie, you know, that kind of thing. We're talking about a significant percentage of people. There's always been a big interest in speculative evolution. All the ideas about possible alternative trajectories of evolution and possible animals in the, the future and what about the things we don't know about from the past, I, I would say that's a, that's a big draw. And there is so much overlap between that kind of interest and... Um, the, the the interest in in mystery animals. So, um, so far as I'm concerned, this is kind of like a major part of not something we think about on an hourly basis because you know working on working very hard. But um, but yeah, certainly something people think of, talk about when they're having a beer. And um, yeah, I, I'm not familiar with a stereotype that um, that that scientists in general are not interested in this stuff. And to, to I'm thinking. I can't. I'm thinking about Charles Paxton, who I know quite well. He's a, technically a fisheries ecologist. Works on statistics of how fisheries work. Which, sorry, Charles, but incredibly boring. You know, well, really sort of dry, <laughs> dry statistics-based stuff. But when he talks to you about um, his interest in all of our ideas about about monsters and uh, spe- cryptozoology and and speculations about animals that might exist, you know, he says that an, an interest in 
talking about you know people's ideas about monsters is something really important and and really kind of you know basic to the the whole scientific drive because you're you're telling people you're 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 actually considering an area that's basically to do with wonder of the of the unknown like a fascination in sort of you know things that things that might be what stuff that's really exciting um no matter how where you are on the on the the science scale whether you're like a a statistician or whether you're someone with just a casual interest um so um yeah it's it's important it's something that like incites wonder and makes us think and and speculative evolution any and any ideas related to speculation and evolution are are important because they do lead us to ask questions about the real world you know when in in doing this this book the cryptozoological john memo and myself we've said that we some of these creatures some some of these cryptozoological creatures um we can be pretty confident that they don't really exist and there are good reasons why they don't exist but in ask so so why don't they exist well that's not just a hunch that's kind of there's a good idea why you know a certain why they probably aren't you know 600 foot long giant serpents off the coast of new england you know there's probably a good reason why that isn't the case and you can come up with a set of specific questions and answers as to why that isn't why that is or is not the case do you see do you see what i mean There's, it leads you to ask valid questions about the way the world works and, oh, and about biology yeah. and about evolution yeah so i okay that's that was somewhat of a forced question because i mean as a uh uh, I, well, I just happen to know for a fact that many of our listeners are teachers or working scientists, so, and they still listen, and we talk about monsters. So I, I know it's not true, but I keep encountering it on uh, all kinds of uh, cryptozoology message boards. It just seems to be a recurring stereotype, uh, of, of, and it's like it's the idea that uh, science rejects things that aren't new. But everything I've seen from working scientists is they're looking for things that would overturn a paradigm. They're looking for things that are new and wonderful and different. I would say this is, I, I don't, I don't know how understood, how appreciated it is outside of the, the academic community. And I mean, academic community in the broadest possible sense, you know, including everyone who's interested in anything to do with that you call academic, but how I don't get, I don't really appreciate how well known it is outside that bunch of people that, when you're inside it, it, particularly if you're like a, if you're a researcher like myself, or if you're, you know, a professor, or if you're involved in anything to do with research, what are you hoping to find? What what is the point of what you do? And in a nutshell, the idea is well, we're looking for the next big thing, the big thing that changes everything. So, and and we're all, I I kind of compared it to what I call Lego bricks. I think you you call them Legos, don't you? That's Legos. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so it, science is like a giant. A grandiose Lego structure, and and over time, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands, if not millions, of individual people have added little bricks to this giant structure. And if you're, you know, a lucky scientist in in your career, you'll get to add like a few little little bricks to one of the buttresses of one of the sidewalls. You know, you'll you'll make a tiny contribution um, that will be minuscule on the scale of things. But what people want to do is they want to actually smash down a whole wall or smash down half the structure <laughs> and like rebuild it it's like people want to how do we come up with these well, we call them informally a group of researchers i'm involved in we call them game changers like oh i've got a real game changer mm. idea here you want the next thing so of course of course people are taking seriously the, the possibility that you know hey if sasquatch does exist well <laughs> we're down we've got to say something about it we're going to do something about it if we do find some compelling gee whiz 
game changer data or oh my god that sea serpent carcass isn't a rotting shark it actually is a sea serpent carcass so i don't need to tell you this i don't need to tell your listeners this but the general idea that scientists are kind of sitting on things keeping them quiet i mean <laughs> I, I i heard a claim a couple of months ago that um some people involved in tiger conservation in sumatra had um they were actually had a body of orang pendek and they were keeping it quiet and i was like excuse me you're talking about people who are involved in the conservation of an area that basically is being raised to the ground for the palm oil industry or something do you not think that if they actually had something as game changery as significant <laughs> as the body of a new hominid don't you think they would do something about that immediately they wouldn't sit on it at all they would rush into print with something like that um so yeah so many stereotypes about the way science works and oh, there's a whole list of things you know um yeah don't get me started but, uh, <laughs> but no no yes. no well i actually i wanted to get you started thank you for sharing all that so <laughs> okay okay so first of all <laughs> first of all the game changer concept so any ideas about conspiracies of silence people sitting on data absolute rubbish absolute rubbish that is not how there are no conspiracies in science that's not how it works and, and one reason that it, it doesn't work and I, I may be repeating myself here is basically because the nature of science is is pretty brutal it's it's red in tooth and claw it's people like trying to you know get one over on colleagues and and be the one who gives the best talk at the international conference and be the one who gets the big paper um all that kind of stuff so so it's very it's very driven i mean it's science is 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 about is about people it's yes it's all about getting bits of evidence together and coming up with conclusions based on the evidence and you have to be able to any statement you make obviously has to be backed up by by data that's a given you know um, that is the basic premise of science. That's what makes it different from other areas of human experience, like religion, for example. So, um, yeah, if people have new data, they're, they're going to act on it. They want to act on it. So any ideas about, about conspiracies or science sitting on data? Absolutely ridiculous. This is about people trying to do well for themselves, trying to do well for their research groups, blah, 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 blah. That kind of leads us to, to money. So the idea, first of all, that scientists are Scrooge McDuck, six vast... <laughs> <laughs> caverns of wealth sitting around on their huge sitting on their enormous piles of cash vast sums of money they can they can uh waste away their money on some frivolous bit of research um excuse me what planet anyone who says that what planet are you living on do you do you not realize how firstly how low scientists wages are um they're not paid as poorly as people that work at you know mcdonald's or kfc or something but they are <laughs> there is not money in science do not go into science if you are financially driven but i know what i'm talking about here. <laughs> so um and grant money i mean the situation at the moment the economic crisis is particularly particularly bad at the moment uh, but for our ordinarily listeners, Dar darren's new uh, series on don't go into science motivational speaking <laughs> 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 this lecture series, the next TED talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe I, I can see, I can see a thing in, in that. Yes, um, I wouldn't make any money from it though. So, <laughs> so why but not? I'm, but I'm, but I'm, <laughs> I might do it anyway. I'm not financially. Nothing I do is related to money whatsoever. But um, no, just the the idea that that's, that there's any financial motivation in science. I mean, don't get me wrong. Of course, there are rich scientists, and of course, there are lots of people in science who have gone into science because they 
to have a fairly easy life yeah, and but, money but to start with. They're, they're maybe rich scientists, but they didn't get rich by doing science. No, no. Right. Uh, t- yeah, there's literally one or two yeah. people who, um, yes, have been, been very lucky. Um, but um, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, but it's so rewarding to find things out. Yeah, yeah, and just and the, your the, family. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Let's not let's not go there. But um, maybe let's pretend this is a third point. Then the um, the fact that what motivates us to do to do science to to come up with new stuff to announce the th- to research the things we do. Well, partly we do f- deliberately find sexy things that we think we can get grant money for, and. I don't know if people know, but the rate of success for grants is somewhere, I think it's like 8% success rate or something ridiculous. So I mean, you, you buy a lottery ticket every time you do a grant proposal. <laughs> and you're probably more likely to win. Yeah, yeah. I, it's just it's just crazy. I have I did get a, a grant, a successful grant application in um, this year, but the money has yet to, has yet to materialize. So it's, um, and we're not talking about a lot of money anyway. We're talking about enough to cover a, a few um, research trips and, and stuff. Um but what what motivates us to do stuff? I mean, yeah, we're trying to come up with with attractive things that we know will will make people think, "Oh, that's something I should potentially fund." But by and large, it's kind of you know genuine passion and curiosity. I mean, most of the stuff that that I work on, most of the stuff that the people I know work on, they work on it because they're really interested in it, because they honestly want to know. And there's a um, there's like a genuine conscientiousness, a um, a real kind of sense of loyalty to some. I, and I should say I'm only talking about people working in the biological sciences here. There's, you know, people who study frogs, let's say, love frogs. And they're not working on frogs because they know that frogs are going to make them rich. In fact, the opposite is going to happen. Frogs are going to make them penniless. They're going to die alone. <laughs> but, but they will do all they can to help the frogs. And and I, you know, that's that's true. Um so and 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 so you know if you're passionate about frogs, it's like well how many how many questions are there to ask about the way the froggy world works? You know, lots of people currently okay talking about frogs. Lots of people are putting a lot of time and effort into working out the um, uh, exactly what's going on, the link with climate change and, and habitat uh, modification to do with Botrachocoridium uh, dendrobotidis, this uh, killer fungus that's basically wiping out amphibians throughout the tropics, the world, particularly in the American tropics. BD, BD it's called. So a lot of people, you know, you can understand people asking questions about that thing, not because they're thinking of money, not because there's some conspiracy they're trying to suppress, no, because they're honestly, genuinely passionate about this subject. And um, I've got a feeling I've gone on a, off on a massive tangent no, here. No problem. <laughs> no, actually, this is all t- I could tie it back together, uh, thusly. Uh, so in addition to the financial benefits of this book... <laughs> There must be other reasons to buy it as well. So I, I know, you know, as a, a working scientist, you also need money. So that listeners should please uh, give now. Uh, the number is on the screen. Uh, <laughs> but also, uh, there's this beautiful artwork in the book. Can you talk about the artwork just a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so John and Memo, uh, John Conway, Memo Cozman, CM Cozman. Um, so for all the cryptids in the book, the what is it? I think it's twenty-eight beautiful full-size um, color, uh, full page, not full size, but um, yeah, novel color restorations of of these animals. So everything ranging from Bigfoot to Tizarek and, and all these uh, various cryptids. Um, yeah, novel beautiful artwork, and um, both of them do stuff that's been quite 
praised by people who come from an arty bent as well as a scientific bent because it's a uh, well i can tell you that john's style often recalls things like um sort of oriental watercolors and kind of french renaissance art and, and all styles are kind of unfamiliar looking styles which um which i think just means they look they look novel wonderful and interesting so plus plus of course they are depicting animals as as if they're biologically plausible genuine organisms so anyone who like you know likes looking at get, gets an art fix looks for an art fix in a, in a book will um will really enjoy this anyone who who's seen um all yesterday's our, our previous book on on uh, speculation in uh, paleontology will will get a kick out of this and i think anyone who knows the cryptozoological literature that knows um something about the creatures will will enjoy this so um so yeah the look of it uh I, I i love their stuff absolutely love their stuff i mean if i wasn't involved in it yeah i would i would just be nuts about this book and um like i say it's kind of meant to be picture led the book is meant to be about the artwork with the text being secondary but um well we ended up with like i said a bit more text than originally planned but um i think that's to the benefit of the book honestly it's really good uh, one more question about the content. So in your, <laughs> I don't want to spoil it, but in your Chupacabra uh, chapter, you, you describe the Chupacabra in your um, speculative portion as being a uh, marsupial, which I thought was pretty interesting. And it, the, the binomial nomenclature you gave for it was, if I'm reading this right, <laughs> Dianaru caprophagus? Is that? Yeah. Okay. And and so I, I, I was, you didn't explain that. I, I'm guessing that's a joke it's not it's not that funny it's going to be a bit of a disappointment but we came up with scientific names for all the animals that are meant to be you know plausible scientific names that we would give to these things if they really were real and we came up with this idea john actually wanted the the chupacabra incidentally there's a mistake in the chupacabra section we we originally had both spellings chupacabra ending in a and chupacabra ending in ras and uh, and i said can you make sure that you uh, it was like a last minute edit i said can you make sure you replace one of the versions and someone did change all throughout the document so we actually have a bit where it says the chupacabra also called the chupacabra and those both, <laughs> both, the same spellings which i find quite annoying but um john wanted it to be a, a giant bipedal marsupial and at the time due to because he in this case he did the artwork first and we did the text later and while we were doing this there was a paper published and I can't remember all the details, so you have to excuse me, but it was saying that there's a living... Uh, when we say opossum, most people think of the Virginia opossum, the, the big, mm -hmm. the big white, whitey grey one that you'll know very well, um, the being in America. Roadside <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Uh, but uh, you, you may you may or may not know that there's actually... Uh, quite a few of them are really horrendously aggressive, well-armed uber-predators, despite the fact that they're the size of a mouse or a rat. And uh, there was a, a paper published on one of these South American ones saying that this opossum, like 15 centimeters long or so, is a saber-tooth, basically a saber-tooth predator, sort of, you know, similar to like a saber-tooth cat, but it's the size of your hand. And uh, so we had a bit of fun with that. We thought, well, let's have like a, a super-sized killer opossum. Because obviously, you know, the chupacabras, we know it's got uh, big stabby teeth of some kind. So dino roo that merely means um, a terrible kangaroo type thing. Okay, because so we also, the root part was right. Okay, got it, got it. Yeah, yeah. A dino, as in dinosaur, means mean terrible, but it doesn't mean terrible as in really bad. It means terrible as in awesome. Um, so 
people say dinosaur means terrible lizard. It doesn't mean terrible as in they, they weren't very good. <laughs> it means it means awesome, like really super powerful. Yeah, oftentimes when people use it in a scientific name, they contract it a little bit. So when Richard Owen in the 1840s came up with the wanted to name a bunch of reptiles dinosaurs, he contracted dinos into Dino, D-I-N-O, but it's the same. It's the same meaning. And then the um, yes, you're right. The specific name, Caprophaga, specifically means uh, goat eating, which is uh, a bit silly. But you know, if the if the tuba capra was a real animal, and if it, if it really was a giant um, uh, predatory bipedal nocturnal opossum, then maybe that's the name we would give it, Dinoru caprophagus. So, <laughs> and many of the scientific names are kind of you know references, sort of jokes along along those those lines. Um, but then there are other creatures in the book where we actually haven't had to do much speculation, if any speculation, because, you know, if you use what's in the literature, well, people have done a pretty good job. You can't, what, what can you say about Sasquatch, Bigfoot or, or the Yeti that isn't already in the books? I mean, you think of how many books there are on, on Bigfoot. It's, it's hard. You'd be really difficult. You couldn't come up with some explanation for Bigfoot that says it's not a, uh, a giant bipedal stroiding hominid, right? If, if you came up with any alternative, that would just be, be ridiculous, ridiculous, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I also and, respond to was a, a good one too. Oh, oh, yeah. oh good. I, I'm glad you like that one. I, I really enjoyed. Now, that was another one where, um, quite a few of the, the, the speculative explanations were, were inspired very much by, sometimes by things that cryptozoologists have said, but sometimes by the things that, that skeptics of cryptozoology have said. So, so Stupendaconda, and again, to get the full details, you have to read the book. But Stupendaconda is basically our gigantic, uh, Amazonian anaconda. So most, most people are familiar with stories. Most, the, the best known one is the Colonel Percy Fawcett one, right? Where he, he reported seeing a, uh, and shooting an anaconda that was, oh, I've forgotten the size, but it was ridiculous. It was, you know, oh. many, many times bigger than. Yeah. I, I want to say it was, good grief. Was it 60 feet long? It was something crazy like that, you know? I, I, I think you're right. I think yeah. it's about, about that kind of size. I'm, I'm going to cheat and look at the book while I talk to you. But um, uh, one, of, one of the, and, and, and I do know cryptozoological researchers who honestly think that there really are. Um, that this that this really exists that they really are supersized Amazonian snakes that are many times bigger than the largest recorded anacondas and reticulated pythons. And since we're this is uh, a radio show, I, I'll just tell you that Darren is right now flipping through a beautiful copy of his book, looking for the reference. So nineteen nineteen meters long. Yeah. Well, so then I was pretty close. Yay! <laughs> yeah. 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 And and he said that he saw others, or he saw evidence for others that must have been quote altogether dwarfed by the one that he sh- that, that that would have altogether dwarfed the one that he shot so he claimed there were even bigger ones so one of the things that i've heard from herpetologists professional herpetologists who regard this stuff as just you know tall tales just ridiculous they say that well if they're really if, if anacondas if there really was some kind of giant kind of anaconda that could grow this large and yet was different from the known anacondas how come we don't have any juveniles or babies of them because of course people have collected well, millions of anacondas for the skin trade and, and as museum specimens as well. So if there, if there's another kind of anaconda that gets to ridiculous size, approaching 20 meters and more, you'd have baby ones of them. So, well, we can get around this. We can say, well, haha, <laughs> maybe there aren't baby ones because the adults are so big. They actually produce 
uh, viviparity, the ability to give birth to live babies, is the norm in these kinds of uh, snakes, in, in boas. So if, you've got, if you have a supersized species, what about the idea that it just gives birth to one like supersized baby, which when it's born is already bigger than the biggest officially recognized snake? So, um, yeah, we, we had fun with ideas like that. So it's, it's informed by genuine things that, that cryptozoologists and skeptics of cryptozoology have said, and it's informed by stuff that's been published on the biology and the evolution of the animals concerned. And, you know, we, we, we cite references and, and everything. And there's some discussion in that section on Stupendaconda on, um, uh, well, for example, uh, work by Jason Head, who, who you know very well, this, this work on these giant, gigantic fossil snakes from Colombia. Um, this stuff on the, uh, the reproductive biology of, of living snakes, which is of known snakes, which is relevant to our hypothesis. So, so I would say it's kind of like, you know, informed, <laughs> informed speculative fiction. I loved it. Um, I thought, and I think the listeners will love it too. Uh, so I think, uh, I will do everything to get this episode out this week. So, <laughs> because people, there's a turnaround time on ordering. So if you get the ebook, you can get it instantly. But if you get the, uh, you want the paper copy, there's going to be some lead time there. You're going to need, if you want, if you were the kind of person who would want to gift this to someone who loved monsters or yourself, uh, you need to act fast. So link will be in the show notes. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really happy so far with all the feedback we've got. I mean, brilliant stuff from, uh, uh, thank you to, you know, Sharon Hill did a brilliant review the other day and um, Cameron McCormick, really nice review. And um, yeah, quite quite a few uh, nice things online. But so far, there's a deafening silence from uh, some of our true believer cryptozoology colleagues. And I don't, I don't think they like it. I think they're... It's, it's, they're it's not- you know, I, it's hard to tell. Uh, you know, uh, Daniel and uh, Don's book, uh, it took a little while for the cryptozoology um, um, believer side to sort of chime in and it was uh, you know don kind of predicted how that would go and and daniel didn't think it would go quite as negatively but it yeah don don, i think won that bet (laughs) yeah the interesting story behind that i've been been following that as well yeah so and i I love that book very impressed with it i think it's a uh brilliant um well well i've said this i think it's quite possibly the most important book on cryptozoology which uh which did make some people quite cross yeah. Um, but um, yeah, in terms of like its level of scholarship and how oh, glossy, oh, shiny pages. Oh, yeah, beautiful. It's, it's, right. No, exactly. Yeah. Beautiful book. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. If, but don't if, buy that one. Buy the cryptozoologic one because it's. <laughs> no, no. And you, you, I love the way you've put your notes right at the end of each chapter. So uh, Don and uh, Daniel decided to put theirs at the end into this giant note section. I would have two parts of the book open because I was always flipping back check, checking yeah. checking the references they did a very thorough job there but very yeah very nice book really impressed with it so, but you did great notes too and I love the artwork and I think uh, again I think listeners will really enjoy this and I appreciate your time I guess I should ask you again what's your favorite monster because it might have changed um, looking around the room Darren's looking around the room looking for Trying to think of one. Well, uh, I don't know. I well, can't really think of a rim. What's your favorite uh, kaiju? <laughs> My favorite kaiju is probably um, uh, I'm rusty on all this stuff because I haven't seen it for a while. I can't remember their names. Knife head. Uh, I, th- I thought he was he was pretty cool. Yeah. Is that is that his real name? What's his real name? Oh, I don't. Know. Otachi was. I quite like Otachi. That was the the flying one that turned out to be pregnant. Um, I thought it was quite <laughs> spoilers. Quite an animal. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. Well, what about you? What, what? 
<laughs> well, I like Gypsy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm still, you know, uh, it's funny because uh, I, I still, my favorite kaiju is probably still Godzilla. Um, the uh, And my favorite uh, Godzilla movie is still Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla, the first one. Huh. But, but all right. Uh, huh. I just I loved it because they had the aliens, uh, mm. and then and then there's the whole scene where um, uh, Godzilla's fighting Anguirus, and you're kind of confused. Why is Godzilla fighting Anguirus? I thought they had become friends, and then you find out it's not really Godzilla. You know that was a spoiler. That's a real yeah. spoiler. Uh, that's a spoiler. I haven't seen that one. No, I'm kidding. Um, I, I quite I quite like some of the newer ones. The fact that they tried to you know they developed increasingly complex plots and well they did um, right they did and uh, even up to uh, uh, destroy what not uh, what's the big one the final wars yeah I like that final one. wars yeah the, yeah the effects were a little hokey but uh, this is Blake I lost a little bit of the audio here Darren and I continued discussing Godzilla and then conversation turns to the new Godzilla film, which is coming out in 2014, which we will pick up in progress now. <laughs> there's, there's bits we see children getting evacuated and stuff. This isn't a Godzilla movie. Come on. Where's the, uh, for the first, that first teaser trailer, the, oh my God, that was, that's excellent, epic. Excellent. And, and I, I like, yeah. I believe that that had to be a, a deliberate attempt to, uh, what do they call that? Um, Streisanding. Yeah, well, Streisanding and creating artificial scarcity, you know. See it oh, quick yeah, while yeah. you can, you know. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, that's it, because it's still quite hard to find yeah. online, to my knowledge. And, and I really, you know, it, it, that was a very beautiful trailer. And and uh, I, I, my son, uh, who is obsessed with Godzilla, uh, has been looking forward to this movie for two years now, because they, it was going to be out this year, and then they postponed it till next year. Um, oh, really? Yeah, and so... You know, it's one of those things. It's legendary pictures, so I mean, they're they're very competent with their digital effects. Um, but if you go back to the original Godzilla, you know, it's got this not the one with Raymond Burr, but I mean, the actual original Godzilla, Gojira. Uh, it's it's got a um, a really nice love story uh, in it, and it's very tragic. But there's also a lot more about the uh, the the impact on the individual people walking around. You know, the, I, you sort of feel more about the disaster it's very obvious people are dying mm. and, and, and as mm. godzilla makes his way through the city whereas in the later ones it seems like they evacuate and everything's clear you don't see that many cars driving around unless it's military yeah. vehicles and let me just make one more complaint about those movies <laughs> you kind of like wonder as the movies go on and they make clear it's a timeline of godzilla attacking again and again and again it's like wouldn't somebody try to vote in a politician who would bring in a different strategy than the same damn missiles and tanks? It's like, we already know those don't work from that last time. Don't you remember, General? Wouldn't we have a giant wall around Tokyo right. or something? Yeah, something. The co- but, yeah, yeah. It's, good. it's a good point. It's a valid point. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah, whether there is continuity from one movie to the next, oh, I don't know. Maybe it's parallel timelines and uh, um, different universes. Um, but it's, it's a it's a valid point. But uh, I do enjoy it. Yeah, I do. I love me a good monster movie. So, all right. Well, yes, Darren. Thank you for spending some time with Monster Talk. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm your host, Blake Smith. In today's episode, you heard scientist and author Darren Nash talk about the mysterious animals called cryptids and about his new book, along with John Conway and Mimo Kozman, Cryptozoologicon. A link to the books in the show notes. Darren Nash also blogs for Scientific American and is a podcaster. A link to his blog and podcasts are in the show notes as well. 
Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine, but I must warn you, the opinions expressed on this show are those of my guests and myself and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. Hmm. Would you like to know about the official opinions of Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? You would? Are you sure? Well, if you would, here's how you can do this. Hey, don't try this if you're driving. But when you're able to access the internet without risking your life or the life of others, do an internet search on your Yahoo or your Bing or your Alta Vista for these three magic words. Skeptic. Magazine. App. With the tools you'll find there, you can unlock the mysterious official opinions of Skeptic Magazine. Thanks to the contributors who've continued to support this show despite my erratic release schedule. If you'd like to contribute to our ongoing efforts to get transcripts for every episode, go to mustertalk.org and click the donate button. It's way down at the bottom of the page, so keep scrolling. Come join the Monster Talk Facebook group, where you'll get updates on upcoming shows and be able to interact with other fans of the monstrous, fantastic, and scientific. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. You can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally. Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com slash magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.